just because we have it doesn't mean we have to have it, you know? And just because others have things doesn't mean that they're going to be better than us. And I think the one thing, even at Florida State, like I always talk about, like there's this really nice Taj Mahal house at the end of the block. But if the people in it aren't happy, the house doesn't really matter, you know? And so it's like, it's super important to me to remind, like it's our people that we got to take care of first. And then we can add things onto the stadium or add things onto how we do things. But if we don't take care of our people, then it really doesn't matter what it looks like. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. To learn more, visit baileymiles.com and be sure to rate, review, and follow us on all social media platforms. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Lonnie Alameda is the Florida State University softball head coach. In 2018, she led the Seminoles to a national championship. She is entering her 16th season as the head coach of the Florida State softball program. Coach Alameda has guided the Seminoles into one of the nation's best teams. After seven Women's College World Series appearances from 1987 to 2004, the Seminoles have returned to the final site of the women's collegiate softball five times in the last eight complete seasons, in 2014, 16, 18, 21, and 2023, including winning the program's first NCAA National Championship in 2018 and two Women's College World Series finals appearances in 2021 and 2023. She has been selected a six-time ACC Coach of the Year, and during her tenure at Florida State, they are a seven-time ACC regular season champ, as well as a nine-time ACC tournament champ. Florida State has played in the NCAA postseason every year under Coach Alameda and is one of only nine schools to participate in the NCAA tournament in every season since 2000. On the show, she shares her story growing up, playing softball, getting into coaching, building programs, building trust, having standards, being vulnerable, core values, common language, and much more. Enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Coach Lonnie Alameda. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Excited. Yeah. Well, if you wouldn't mind, maybe give our listeners some context to to your story and growing up and and kind of the background as you were growing up. Yeah. Um, fun that I can share the story right now because um, I was actually um, inducted to the Hall of Fame this weekend at the NFCA. Oh, congrats. And, yes. Um, it's uh, kind of crazy when you're putting together a speech, you know, about, I guess you don't know what to put it, the speech about, you know, but obviously <laughs> I think a lot of people speak of their background because that's really important to know where you started. And so um, just talking about my family and, you know, it's just my mom and dad, my brother, and we live out of Northern California and played a lot of sports. And even at OU, when I was there, I played volleyball too. So the multi-sport part later in college was a big part of my upbringing, which is not a thing nowadays for many sports, um, you know, but I loved it. I, I love being able to do that, but I'm a big traveler. We rode horses. Um, we traveled a lot. So um, I, I feel like later now in my career, I try to go out with our team and go camping and doing some things because my upbringing is definitely a lot of nature and uh, really enjoyed that part of it. But um but yeah, I played a little Bobby Sox um, league, you know, didn't have a lot of formal um, club teams like they do now. Um, so really, really enjoyed that. 
Uh, went to school at St. Mary's in San Antonio and then transferred up to OU um, just down the road from you um, and played there. We played on uh, rec fields. We did not have stadiums. Um, I remember doing um, support stuff for the Hall of Fame stadium. Like the vision of Marita Hines was to have this World Series here in Oklahoma City, you know. And so I remember doing camps and clinics and um, all kinds of stuff in the summers there, um, you know. So I think I was very at the grassroots level of like this explosion of what softball is now. And I don't know where softball is going to go, but um, so cool that I was a part of that, not knowing any of that, you know, not even knowing that I wanted to coach. And um, when I went down to get my master's at Barry, um, it was literally just to get my master's and get involved in sports somewhere, not coaching. And then, you know, here, 20 plus years later and I'm coaching, um, you know, it's super cool to be on the backside of that. But, um, you know, at the time I just love softball and, um, I think I love the, the combination that was outdoors because I was an outdoors person, um, the ability to travel with the sport and just the social aspect being a part of a team. So I think all those things together just kept drawing me back to the game of softball. And, um, yeah, so here I am today, 16 years here at Florida state, um, you know, I was 10 years at Stanford, uh, five years in Vegas, like I've gotten a lot of opportunity to be around this game and it's been super cool. I'd say it's all worked out for you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But going back into your childhood, you touched on going outside and, and riding horses, but what were some of the things that you, maybe you learned from your parents that they instilled in you? And maybe it's good timing that you're sitting there writing that speech to be able to kind of reflect. <laughs> yeah. What, what yeah, are some yeah, things sure. that really stand out about what they taught you at a young age? Um, I think for us. Um, being on 30 acres there, um, we had barn and, you know, area for people to, um, leave stuff that they need to. So like, honestly, I, and still to this day, there's trailers and trucks and tractors and whatever people couldn't house at their house, they housed at our house and, um, or our property. And, um, my mom always helped out with people that couldn't afford to, um, you know, have their horses stay at stalls or, you know, take care of them. So, um, growing up, it was a lot of people in and out of the property and that was just became a norm. So I think that's one thing that um, I'm fairly good with in the shape of my coaching frame is welcoming everybody and, um, you know, just rolling with whatever happens. And that was just definitely a big upbringing. So my parents were very giving on that side. Um, and then I would say super creative. My mom was very creative and so uh, willing to do things a little different. I told the story about my birthday party, uh, my brother's birthday party, she was like a big planner. My grandma was a big planner. She worked for Mary Kay back in the day. And so they did planning and parties and stuff. And so my mom had one of these games where um, to see who could toss the cow patty the farthest. We had cattle too. <laughs> to see who could toss the cow patty the farthest, like uber competitive, super fun. But my brother and I were like, what are we doing? You know, and, <laughs> Um, later to find out like the, the kids at the party loved it because it was different, you know, it was uh -huh. just something different and something they could talk about. And so I think when we were mortified, they were seeing something different. And then, you know, later, I think my brother and I realized like, you know, being different, doing things different is kind of cool and doesn't really matter. So I think those are two things that really stuck out to me that now coaching and you have to lead and you have to tell these kids it's okay to be different. And it's okay to to not go wrong with the norm. Uh, you're a two percenter. You want to train at a high level and just sharing those stories and being that, being that vision of that, you know, it helps them, you know, stay strong in what they want. So yeah. So those are some, some things that stick out for me. Absolutely. Well, maybe what you can do with your team for some team building is do some cow patty tosses. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's, <laughs> that's a great story. Yeah. Well, you, 
you talked a little bit about growing up and how did you wind up at St. Mary's out of, out of high school and, and playing softball there and then winding up at Oklahoma? Yeah. Um, so I went to work for a, it was called the California pitching and hitting school. Um, my junior year in high school. So I got, I had to get jobs and, um, through my club team, um, uh, met some people there. Anyway, it's got a job down there. So I was the cashier there and then I cleaned up, um, after the evening's end. And so via me working there, I started doing some lessons and doing some things and trying to get a little better. So coaches would come in to the school to see other athletes. And, um, so my name was thrown around a few places and, um, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, Hawaii, um, and then St. Mary's in San Antonio. And I, I guess maybe just the traveling person in me, like, was like, oh, like, be cool to see Texas, you know? Uh-huh. So, um, so I went out to Texas side unseen. I just went, I took the offer and went and, um, really enjoyed it. Um, we ended up going to the national championship for NAIA, um, out in Michigan that year. Um, but I just wanted something a little more challenging. Um, I was a pitcher at the time. I wasn't a very good pitcher, but I was definitely a pitcher at the time for them, but I loved hitting and I loved playing multiple positions. So, um, my club ball organization, uh, there was a coach in the organization. He got the assistant job out at Oklahoma. So when I was kind of thinking like, maybe I'll just go back to junior college and see what it's like in California for some opportunity. My name got to Oklahoma. So that's how I got to OU and then uh, was there for the next uh, three years of playing. And then I stayed for and did some, um, an internship with sports information. But, um, but yeah, that, that was my, my route. And I'm so glad, like when I was at St. Mary's, our, our men's basketball team won a national championship for NAI. Like it was very high level NAI. So I got to experience that. At a super small school, a thousand kids, you know, to then going to 30,000 and this like Mecca, you know, it was the Barry Switzer days. It was like, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. And so, um, again, at a young age, you just never know what your living is going to affect you later in life. And now I'm like living in sports and that Barry Switzer stuff is like so prevalent, you know, and like, you uh-huh. know, the players getting money and now NIL. It's just crazy how I lived it. And then it's, you know, it's something that's going on right now. So yeah, it's really absolutely. Cool. Well, that's an interesting story and being able to see things at the NAI level at a high level. Yeah. And then going to Oklahoma and seeing some other things at a high level at a, just a different, different level, but there's still yep. a high level yep. with top caliber people and players and coaches. Yep. And yeah. So when, and still pressure so when, and still all that kind of stuff, you know, so it doesn't matter what level you're at, you're going to deal with the same things. And, mm-hmm. Um, so when I went to coach at Barry University, you know, it's um, lower level than where I played, but still the same pressures. And we were in postseason to go into Stanford, who was a club program that were kicking over to be in the pack, which at the time was ridiculously competitive, um, to eventually leaving Stanford when we went to the World Series. You know, just being a part of growth, it was just what I did and was just what I round to now, like, so many years later realizing like, ah, I was really part of so many cool things that I'm pulling from that toolbox right now. Absolutely. And, you know, you said when you're at Oklahoma, you were playing volleyball as well. Is that correct? Yeah. What was that like for you? And how, how has that helped you maybe even enhance your experience of relating to players? You know, you don't have a lot of people that are playing two sports in college nowadays, but just being able to relate to your players and connect on that level and maybe the challenges that you had to to overcome while playing both sports in college at a high level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I just wanted to get into volleyball because I wanted to train. So mm-hmm. I stayed during the summers and trained and I just wanted to be the, in the best shape I could be in. So, um, 
So, and then I actually made the team, which was super cool, you know? And so I got to travel again with yeah. them and, you know, we went out to San Francisco and I got to see my family in the off season time of softball. So now in sports, we have off season that's very intense. So, um, so I, I just supplemented that. So I think that the balance of both sports is any different because they're balancing a fall season at a high level. On, and my fall season was just volleyball. It wasn't softball. So, um, so it's the same in that side of it, but I do think like, um, it's just different. You could be all in then. And now with social media and NIL, like it's hard because you're pulled so many different directions. So I feel sorry for the girls. And I always tell them that, man, like, I feel sorry for you guys. Cause like when I was all in, uh, it was just us, you know? And like some people took some pictures every now and then and, you know, would develop them 10 days later and you'd look <laughs> at them. But like, like now, like you just, you got the opportunity to be genuine, be where you're at. And now it's hard for them to really let that guard down because Everything is so instant. Everything has to be on point. And it is their world. That's all they know. Um, but, you know, I, I sit there and I tell them, like, gosh, there was just this time that was, like, super cool that you just, like, if you ever want to go play basketball at midnight, people would go play basketball at midnight. And you just hang out and you'd have fun. And it was just, it was genuine. And it was your guys' moment. And, you know, and now it's like, oh, we're going to play basketball at midnight. And it's on social media and Twitter. And then we're taking pictures. And, you know, there's just no, like, it's just us. And so... Um, so I, do, I feel bad for them sometimes that they're robbed of some innocence of what amateur athletics is all about. Now, when I say that, it's not amateur athletics anymore. I know that um, they're getting opportunity to make some money and do some things. So that's the byproduct. Um, so, you know, I, I try to manage our schedule um, to do events where the phones are taken away, to do things. I just try to sprinkle that in a little bit because I, I think they're, the innocence of team and growing team is really important. And, um, so maybe that's where I pull from it. Cause I remember that. So I try to can't avoid what's happening right now, but I try to put it into, um, our journey. Absolutely. And kind of within your journey, before you got into coaching, you got to play professionally, I believe in Europe for just yeah. a little bit, which kind of goes yeah. into the love for travel and experiences. What was that experience like before you decided to step into getting your master's in coaching? Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, pretty awesome now that even somewhere like Kaylin Arnold, um, when she graduated from here, went over and she played in Italy. I know Monica Barrow when she left here, she did many years in Australia. And so it's still a thing to do. And um, I still try to um, keep those connections going so our players can go over there and do that. But um, yeah, I think the international part of it, um, like I, I get the opportunity to work with Team Canada too. And um, it's one of those things that fills your bucket as a sports person. I don't care what sport it is. Um, we are so lucky to have these huge stadiums and athletic trainers and um, director of operations and, you know, people that do that. And then you get to the Olympic level side. So, you know, we medaled in softball. So I'd say we're high level softball as Team Canada. Obviously, USA is good. Japan's good. Um, so you get to that side and it's very like you go out and there's a donkey on the field or <laughs> like you don't even know who's speaking what language or um the pitching rubber is like this deep in sand or you know and it's like the elitist of elite after college go on and play and they they genuinely play the games they love it they absolutely love it and they love the connection with people and the sharing of the pins or the flags or the banners like there's just this common thing the softball that brings us all together and it doesn't matter what level you're at you're all on this just random field in some random country you know and and competitiveness comes out but you know it's just really neat to share that culture piece of our sport so I really appreciate going internationally um, and being able to travel and play the sport because it, it doesn't matter if you don't speak the language, you speak the language. So it's one thing that, that you know, ties you together. And 
um, this instant family. So when you go to college, you have an instant family, you have an athletic family and a softball family. When you tour and play sport, you have an instant family because you're all there because of softball, you know, so it's just like it brings you connections, you know, better. And so um, so I love that piece because I love the travel piece, but I, I love the softball piece. And now trying to get our kids like cats over in Japan playing. And that's what she always wanted to do. And so she played for AU in Japan. So she's benefiting from being able to make some money, but she's still doing exactly what I did way back in the day, just loving travel and meeting people. So that connection is still there on that side. Absolutely. And the ability to go overseas and to experience new cultures, new people, the love authentically playing for the love of the game as well. Yeah. There's so yeah. many benefits to being able to do that. And so I think that's a, a unique part of your story that you're able to obviously share with, with the players that go and do that as well. And, yeah. and it c connects the game too. Yeah. It grows and connects the game. So I think that's a pretty cool aspect. But getting into coaching, you're at Barry, then I think you went to Stanford. What are some things you learned maybe as an assistant coach? that really stand out to you looking back on some of the head coaches you worked with and maybe the assistants that you're around as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think over my time, um, I always talk to when I do speaking engagements and speak like um, sometimes as assistant coaches and head coaches, there's, there's these two areas that can get very frustrated with each other. But the reality is uh, until you're a head coach, um, you don't know what it's like, right? So as an assistant, you can't get too upset because you don't know what it's like until you're a head coach. And when I went to UNLV and um, even though I had a lot of responsibilities at Stanford and I was an associate head coach, it's different when you become the head coach and you're in charge of the program and you put your head in the pillow at night and you're like, man, like, are the kids okay? Am I doing it right? Is everyone safe? Is everyone tucked in bed? Like, like just this huge pressure goes on your shoulders. And like, when you're an assistant, you feel like, you know, the coach isn't doing it right. Like until you're the head coach, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. And like, I think that's truly important. And as a head coach, you know, to never forget what it was like to be an assistant. So there are times where maybe assistant coaches like will lose it. And I'm like, I get it. Like, you know, you've never been a head coach. So I should understand that, you know, that you don't know what this pressure is like. So of course you're going to have your max frustration, but like, if you can one, be super transparent, I'm very transparent in everything we do. Like um, I I'm, I don't know it all. I'm not going to know it all. Um, I'm totally okay with like turning things over um, because I, I know what that's like when I was an assistant wanting the best for the program, but I hadn't experienced all that pressure on myself. So I just, I definitely remember where I came from in that side of it. And then, you know, now as a head coach, I get that I'm not going to be the coolest decision maker all the time, you know? And so um, having to make those decisions of like, no, we're not going to go have ice cream because it's not good for us. You know, I'm like, oh, you suck. Well, I guess I do. You know, like <laughs> it's just like it's the best of the better of the the big picture. And so um, so I think those are some things that, you know, I learned through my time. And when I was with John Rittman at Stanford, um, you know, we had a, a pretty big task to, to fill. Um, we were the I guess the floor mat pretty much of the pack. Um, you know, it was. I always joke, I even told Jess Alistair this, but like some of our cheers in the beginning was, it's all right, it's okay, we're going to be the boss of you someday. Like, <laughs> like it was like, legitly, that was our only thing uh -huh. that we could, because by the second inning, if we were into the second inning and it wasn't 10 runs, like, you know, we were doing pretty good. So, okay. but we only had two scholarships. We were, you know, in a conference that was very, very national championship titled, you know. But we slowly grew. Then we got a little more scholarships and we started winning some more games, got a little more scholarships. And, you know, and then we ended up winning and going to the World Series. And, you know, that was really, really neat to be a part of that growth. 
so John and I had to do really like tackle that together big time. So I got a lot of experience because um, he was an assistant at Washington and comes down now he's the head coach and it's a tougher school to get people into. There's just bigger, bigger things. So um, he really gave a lot to me. And, um, you know, at the time as an assistant, you're like, man, I'm doing everything. Uh -huh. And now I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful that I was doing everything. And um, because, you know, it, it's really helped me to where I'm at right now. So, so I think that was big. And like in my Hall of Fame speech talking, Lisa Novice down at Barry University, I had never met her, but she just opened her door and said, man, like you can stay here as long as you want. Here's the couch. Like you just don't have a lot of funding as a young coach and to get those coaches that are very willing to like help you out and, you know, I was very thankful for her because if she didn't do that, like I, who knows where I would have been. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of coaches in our profession that would do that, but just as a constant reminder, like, man, if you can be that person and I definitely open my house a lot too, to, to people to come in. Cause I do remember that like, of not having a ton of funding and then, you know, not having a place that would really help you grow. And she definitely helped me grow. So, um, so those are, those are two things that I remember with those um, experiences. Yeah. When you look back at some of those things, like not having the funding and not having maybe some of the resources, do you feel like that really helped shape you and enhance you as a coach because you didn't have maybe some of the things that are a little easier to get when you have some of the resources and the funding to do it? And so you have to figure things out a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting enough, I feel like, yes, I feel like um, it could be a crutch. It, you know, it's like, oh, we don't have this, so mm -hmm. we're not supposed to be good. And we had to figure out how to be good without having it. And so now, um, you know, I'm even like, because uh, we had to, you know, tape balls together at UNLV because we didn't have the funding for balls. Like, right. you know, I duct tape balls together, hit off a tee. Like, that's just where we were. And, you know, to, to this day, I'm like, go track that ball down. Like, we are not, I think <laughs> we can afford it. But like, why? You know, like we got uh -huh. it. We can get away with it then. We can get and so I become very um, frugal, mindful, like we, just because we have it doesn't mean we have to have it, you know, and just because others have things doesn't mean that they're going to be better than us. And I think the one thing, even at Florida State, like I always talk about, like there's this really nice Taj Mahal house at the end of the block, but if the people in it aren't happy, the house doesn't really matter, you know? And so it's like, it's super important to me to remind, like it's our people that we got to take care of first. And then we can add things onto the stadium or add things onto how we do things. But if we don't take care of our people, then it really doesn't matter what it looks like. And so I think that that's a, something that's really stuck with me. Um, you know, again, at Stanford, we just had a field. Um, I ran the Costco snack shack, you know, I had a table out there that had M&Ms and Snickers and was hoping to make a little money at the end of the day for our assistant coach, you know? And, and so it's like very hands-on, but then also realize like how much, um, it didn't matter if you had a regular concession stand or that people just wanted a Snickers. And then, you know, people really were like, honestly, more into our little table there because they knew how hard we were working and wanted to be a part of it. Sometimes when you get concession stands and other people and you start to get four or five layers away from the meaning, you lose that connection. And then, you know, it just becomes this huge business. And then you don't have that love for what we're, we're all about. And so, so, yeah, so I definitely try not to make that a crutch too much as, you know, well, they have it. We're not supposed to win. Like, we'll find a way to win as long as we can get the right people to be a part of it. Mm, yeah, I think that's a great perspective and having the right people and making sure that component of it is the key and everything kind of stems out of that. But at Stanford, you talked about your kind of, you know, the floor mat, as you said, of the of the, the pack right there. But 
what was it like for you guys? How did you, how do you transition from going kind of towards the bottom to the top? And what were the kind of the, the key things you guys were doing to be able to see that growth and to build the program the way you guys did? Yeah. Um, I mean, pitching's the, one of the biggest parts. So, um, you know, the last couple of years, I think I've been, um, a part of the change of pitching in the sense of using multi, um, pitchers throughout a game. Um, so, uh, but we did that at Stanford. We had, I, you know, again, getting kids into Stanford, like you just don't know who you're going to get in. So there was a time where we recruited seven or eight pitchers. And one year we got five in and we had five pitchers, which was unheard of, but we used our five pitchers and we developed our five pitchers. And so then we actually were pretty good in the, in the circle. So, um, you know, that was some one thing that really changed as we went after, you know, to make sure that we had good pitching and good looks because we were facing some really, really good offenses. Um, we also were really good at getting multi-positional players. So the versatility was really big for us. So like a Jessica Mendoza who, caught a little bit, played some outfield, like she played some first base, like she was all over the place. Um, so the more we could get, the more we could focus in on that, then we started building, you know, the team and, and let it come out. You know, Lappin was a catcher for us, but she also played shortstop. Like it was just really, really big um, strategy on that side, you know, and building yeah. it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, you guys then, have, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just say then we, I mean, the smarts, you know, so like you can get a, Stanford kid was really smart. So you could get like back in the day to talk about blue chip players versus red chip players, like a blue chip, just a no brainer, you know, three to five tool player. And then you get this one tool red chip player. We got a lot of red chip players that played like blue chips because we started teaching the game a little bit differently to their smarts. And then like, they were able to be like all in for it and earn confidence. So they played a little, they weren't trying to play the level of a UCLA softball. They were trying to play the level of a Stanford and then keep increasing that. And I think once that vision started coming, the confidence started growing. Yeah. And it was just really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys went on to have some great success. And then obviously that success enabled you to go on and be a head coach at UNLV. You yeah. talked a little bit about being assistant and being a head coach and the difference of your mindset and just the things and the, the pressure that you have. What was it like when you took over the job and you first sat in the seat and you were making those decisions and how much of an adjustment was it for you? And then how did you think of wanting to establish the program you wanted to establish and, and maybe the, the daily things you were doing to, to kind of do that at UNLV before you got to Florida State? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> interesting, you know, just, um, I think again, back to recruiting, you know, so you come in and, and you get to meet the team and you get to assess the team. And then it's like, okay, you know, like, what do we need here to... Um, cause back in those days you didn't really, and I wouldn't say run off, but like nowadays people go in and they clean house and, um, that wasn't my style a and B that wasn't in the softball world either. Like you just didn't do that. And, um, I think it's way different with the portal nowadays, but so just trying to figure out what we had. And then, you know, fortunately we had some really good kids and we just got to, had to tap in a little bit to their talents. And so I think, um, you know, something that we do here, just work on the base running side of it, the speed game. Like we implemented a lot of those pieces, um, to add to the already athletes that we had there. So, um, but the big thing was just playing together as a team. Um, you know, we needed a lot of discipline there. Um, I know even coming into Florida state, just, uh, you know, embracing like practices are going to be hard. <laughs> like uh -huh. We're going to challenge you and, 
um, you know, just trying to take that next level. So it's one thing to be good. Like if you want to be great, like you got to put the time in to be great. And we're going to have a lot of hard conversations and we're going to challenge everyone's leadership skills. And um, so I, I think that, you know, jumping in and doing that. And then to me, the byproduct of connection allows for trust to happen on the field. So a lot of off-campus stuff, a lot of community service stuff, a lot of things that I become a normal person while we're going to hospitals or picking up trash or helping out with, you know, local leagues or whatever it is. Then I get in the field and we become player coach, but we have this off field relationship that, you know, who I am or what I'm about. So it can really build that connection. So now I can demand a little bit more from you. And Vegas was the start of that, you know, UNLV and, um, you know, those kids are, um, we're just, I mean, they were tight and they knew where they wanted to go and I could push them because we, we had a good connection. So I was able to take that mindset a bit into here too at Florida State and um, know that that was a piece that worked at Stanford that ended up being a piece that worked as a head coach at UNLV and, and it's been definitely a success for us here. Yeah. And when you get to Florida State, when you come in or even at UNLV, when you have players that have already been there and then bring in new players that you bring in that kind of fit the identity of, of the culture and the uh, program you want to establish. Is it tough to kind of mesh people that have been there before with a new philosophy? And then how do you bring in players and integrate and build that trust you're talking about? Cause you just touched on it, but yeah. connecting those players together to have that type of, of uh, team mentality, what has yeah. that been like for you and how do you, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, probably a little easier right now because you're recruiting kids to the standard that, you know, like in your conversations, they've seen the standard. This is what we're about. We're recruiting to it. So it's just a little easier to match it. We're coming into a program like these are my standards, but this current team doesn't really know it yet, but I want to bring you into it, you know, so you got to build it together. And um, again, that just goes back to trust and, and being the vision of it. And, um, you know, probably a, a lot more, I mean, of course, you know, you hear the, the stories of the kids like, oh, you were so much more challenging to us when you were here um, to these kids now, you know, it's not as much, as much discipline now, but it's because the program's raised to like, these are the standards and we don't have to have a ton of discipline because they're already disciplined. That's just in the DNA, you know? So, um, but I don't know. It, it's just, a, it's a lot of work. I mean, I pride myself on being a very transformational um, coaching style versus transactional and I get that the transactional style has to work or else I don't have a job. <laughs> like, you know, I have to win games and I have to pull them out. But like I um, and my staff in general, like just really love the joy of the player's growth. So if you can get inspired and you can be um, all in for each individual person's growth, then like it's not like, oh, like I'm just hunting this outcome of a trophy. Like you're hunting to see Kat Sandercock be able to do what she does and go on into the real world. And so if you live in, to me in a transformational lifestyle, like, and, and that's your coaching style, it just feeds your soul. doesn't matter how long you've been coaching versus burnout. You know, if you roll into the transactional style and you don't achieve the goals, it becomes burnout. And then the players, you know, like you're just searching for new players to transactionally give you the wins. And so that can be very tough. And some coaches do it, which is fine. And, the, and but me personally, I, I just really like the connection piece to it. And so um, I can live and die off of that part of it. Yeah. And you touched on doing community service, going out hospitals, doing things together as a team. You touched on camping, going back yeah. to your experience as a kid. Are those ways that you kind of develop the trust and the bonds offside, outside of the, the softball field and to, to build the component of trust to where when you're in the moment and practice games, 
there's a level of accountability you can hold them to because they know that they you love and care about your players. Yeah. 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 And I think too, is when they're, they can get vulnerable enough to share what they really want. Um, you know, cause it's scary to say, I want to be an all American or I want to be really good. Like, uh, you know, I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, how, how do you do it? Every player is going to be different. Um, I remember, you know, again, I go back to Kat Sandercock. She's most recent, but Lacey Waldrop was someone that inspired her. Um, Kat and Lacey are completely different. So, Cat wanted what Lacey had, but we had to go about it different ways, you know. And in between there, Cat was influenced by a Megan King, who again had to go about different ways. So the outcome and what people see, and maybe a number you're trying to get to, a title you're trying to get to, is totally the journey is different for every player. And so by my ability to connect with all of them, I'm filling my toolbox of um ways to help them get to where they want to go. And so maybe there's a piece of Kat's journey that I, that maybe I got from a Jessica Burroughs, you know, like as long as you're open to it. So, yeah. So I, I think that um, by opening those doors of vulnerability and connection, you can hear what they want. And then when you start to hear what they want, um, then, of course, I've been around the game a long time and was able to experience other players' journeys. So then that helps me give back to them and, and try to support them. Yeah. Well, going into that, it just made me think how important is just being able to listen to what each player is saying and, and your staff and the yeah. people in, involved in the program in general. Is that yeah. always been something you've been good at and being able to listen and then adapt to each person? Yeah, for sure. I think um, I was a communication major, so um, okay. I wanted to go into ESPN and broadcasting and all that kind of stuff. That was kind of the, the area I wanted to go. So um I'm sure there were some classes. I can't remember that far back, but <laughs> I'm sure there were some classes. Um, but, you know, I think that is communication in general is speaking, but also listening, right? Interpreting. Um, you know, I think in general, my my disc assessment, you know, I'm a pretty influencer is probably the style I go to. So it's natural to me to um, want to help people. And if you're going to try to influence, you got to hear. And so, um, so, yeah, definitely something that I think I didn't realize until later in life. Like, I, I just honestly, like you are who you are growing up. And then you get kind of later in life and you're like, wow, like look back at what I've done. And then there's little things that start to show up like, oh, like I, I do do a pretty good job of this, you know? And I didn't realize that was me at all. Um, but you know, definitely now later in life, you're like, oh, that I, I guess I do that pretty naturally. And then I have to get really good at things that I don't do naturally. Um, because then, you know, again, if you're going to lead a program, it can't just be the one way you do things. Um, there are a lot of different personalities out there as part of your team. And if I get a bunch of personalities that are like me, then we're going to be in trouble, you know? So I have to respect, you know, um, maybe some people that are very introverted or I have to respect some, some very smart people that aren't comfortable with communicating, you know, but they're off the chart smart. So if I can tap into their smarts, that can help me grow. So I think that's the one area that I realize what I do, but then I need to be challenged by other areas of personalities in order for us to be pretty equal as we go on. Mm. But I think going into what you just talked about, understanding naturally who you are and seeing those common patterns that yeah. have came out over time and then putting together a team or a coaching staff or a team in general of the different qualities that they have and complement each other and then working yeah. on your weaknesses too. Yeah. But knowing what you're, you're really good at and honing in on that, I think is really important as you yeah. alluded to just a second ago. Well, kind of going into you know building a team and what you've done, I've heard you touch on maybe some core values and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how that's been important, but also the idea behind defining like a common language in that, because I think that's really important. It's easy to talk about core values, but 
having that common language that you touched on and defining that, I'd love to have you share that perspective. Yeah. Um, so we worked with a sports psychologist, um, and Brian Kane and Kaner early on, you know, he's always been about pillars of success and core values. And in my mind, early coaching, I'm like, mm, yeah, core values, you know, like you're just yeah. like, you're doing your thing. And then like, and I, I think that goes to any coach or any program or any company, right? You, you have this like passion, you want to work and work and work. And then you realize like, man, you've got to, you got to have something that's a guiding light and something that, that binds you in, in a common language. And it just really got to me that I could see people's slogans. You walk into a gymnasium and there's some sort of slogan for a high school or a wrestling or whatever it is. And, uh, and then I, I just really got to like, man, do you guys live that? Like, do, do you live that? And so we got into defining what our core values were. And so what we did is um, we had index cards and um, we took, you know, our staff, you know, all our coaches, our athletic trainer, our equipment person, everyone, like write down five words that this jersey means to you. I held up the jersey, like five words that define this jersey. And then I did it for the team, five words that define this jersey. And so then we wrote all the words down and tried to, you know, find some commonalities in some of the comments. And so, um, so for us as a staff, family was a big one. And then for the team family, like the word family just came out. So like essentially doing it later was really good for me because like I'd been, we'd been living it. Mm -hmm. So essentially they were defining what we were doing. So that was our culture. Our culture was a family, family-based culture. So it wasn't like I was trying to say, Hey, we're going to do this core value. And then we're going to try to do it. You know, it was like, Oh, you defined a core value that we are doing. So it supported what we had been living. And then, you know, we were defining some other words. So ours is, um, FSAC. So it's family, smart, aggressive, committed, competitive. And so I think that, um, in defining those, we do it every year. Um, we sit down every fall and we spend a week or two on it, right? What is family? Because I don't need the freshmen to come in and be like, oh, family, because they're just going to go right to their family. So like Issa Torres, who's got a sister in college, her dad's a coach, she's from Texas. She's going to go to that family. And then maybe I have another Jason E, you know, who's an only child is going to go to her family. And when I say the word, that's all they're going to refer to. But now I have to like get to know them and their upbringing and then bring that back to like how we do things as a Florida State family. So I think that's where the common language has come in is really diving into it. So now you've got it, you know, a deaf Flaherty right now who's into her fifth year with us. And, you know, she's like, yeah, family, you know, here we go again with family, you know, <laughs> but like, I think she takes pride in like, this is how we do it as a family. And I want to get to you, to know you, Jason. E. Like, I want to get to know you so then I can make sure that you feel comfortable in how we do things in the standards. And so if we're going to have a player led organization, that's going to take care of the locker room, that's going to take care of big moments on the field. We have to make sure that their common language comes from them. So the family will be defined every year a little bit differently because there's different family members every year. And, um, you know, and I think with our staff, a big one for me has been like, you know, we're a year older and wiser and we've been through it. There's still, 18, 19 coming. They're still freshmen. They're still going to do freshman things. Like we can't get burnt out over the fact that like, oh, here we go again. Like we got to know that like, here we go again. They're, you know, they're going to get sick. They're going to get homesick. They're going to get out late. They're going to do those things. But if we can really put our arms around it and we have good leadership, 
they'll get to where we want to go versus judgment. If we judge them and judge them and judgment, then the judgment's going to pull them away. And then we're never going to get to that vulnerability state that we talked about to be like, man, I want to be this, help me be that. So mm. I think that's where common language and core values really help shape um, your consistency every year as a program. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. That's, that's really important for everyone to understand and define together because those yeah. core values hopefully you're living them out. It's not something you're trying to just say, hey, we want to do this. It is what you actually do. Yeah. And going into that, you talked a little bit about, you know, understanding what people want, but also understanding what the team wants and then working together collectively to make those things happen. But what does it look like with those core values to hold people accountable? And, and how do you go about doing that in the moment? I'm sure it differs from situation to situation. Yeah. But can you think of examples that, that you try to do to be able to hold people to those standards? Yeah. I mean, it's funny right here. So, um, the, the spear, right. So uh -huh. we do, we put Florida or, um, it's Florida state ACC, right. FSAC. So we put that above the spear living above the line is living above the values. Once you go down to the standards, right. So let's just say like tucking your shirt in at practice is a big one. Okay. So when we come out to practice, shirts are tucked in. If it's not tucked in, you're living below the spear, below the line, below the standard to, um, call you up, right? Not call you out to call you up is like, Hey, Dev, tuck your shirt in. Mm -hmm. And then like our common language is working like, Oh, Dev, you're a horrible person. Tuck your shirt in. Like the, it's like, we've got standards is how we do it. This isn't judgment. Right. So if we can open up those and we do every couple of weeks, we talk about, tell me, you know, tell me right now we left for, we left for winter break. Everyone wrote below the line standards, sleeping in all day, uh, Netflix binging, da, 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 da. Above the line would be get up normal time, drink water, so then that can we hold ourselves when we're away from each other to the standards that are going to help us be better in our behavioral um, ways that we do things as a player. So we dive into it. And then there's definitely some tough ones. You know, there's definitely like every coach is going to go into a college, like who's staying out late, you know, like the drinking, you know, atmosphere of a college athletics. Like it's really important to cover all those things because you could just brush the easy ones and not dig into the hard ones. But if you dig into the hard ones that are going to hit you, you've already had that conversation and uh, body language. Um, you know, there's so many areas that can get really uncomfortable that we got to be like, mm, that's it. <laughs> you know, let's stay yeah. on it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and how important is body language? I think that's an interesting topic because body language speaks in its own way a lot yeah. of times more than people think. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I actually have a lot of conversations with body language and even when we do camps, I always talk with the parents at camps and try to bring to light body language because, you know, like one of the things I always get at camps is like from the parents is like, Oh, what should we put on social media? What should we tell our kids not to put on social media? And I'm like, man, like if you're telling your daughter right now at the age of 11 or 12, I don't know, you know, like 13 to stop doing things in order to get something like you're suppressing their, who they are. And so like you're saying, like, you're not good enough as a person to, to put like this band that you like, or I don't know, this person you want to hang out with, whatever, like, they've got to be who they are, in order to find out who they are and what they want. And so I think that's like, just really, really tough sometimes, you know, to to get into the, the body language piece, because judgment is such a big part of it. And so mm. for an example, a kid comes in, strikes out and throws her helmet right away. Male, female, right? Male's like, ooh, cool dude. Like, you know, he, he's passionate, right? Female is like bad teammate, you know, like, oh, she's a hothead, right? So it's like we get judged already right away. And then to take the perspective of you're telling your daughters at a young age they can't do this in social media. They got to work out hard. They got to sell us up. Like they're putting a lot into it 
our players are getting up every morning at six. They're trying to live a 2% life in a college environment that can pull them away from it. They, they playing a failure sport, like all these things, like, do you not think at some point when something goes wrong, they don't want to beat a wall up, you know, like, like how do you release this, this passion that you have, you know, and it may come out in anger for some people. It may come out in tears for some people. Like the minute we say, Oh, girls are weak and they cry. Like, like we're going to suppress and suppress and suppress and either we're beating a wall up or we're crying or we're yelling. Right. Like those are, those are so like body language comes out differently to me. It's like, once that goes, then I got to be back to normal. So if I'm holding on to it and I'm pissy and I hold on to it and I'm my shoulders are down and I'm not looking at people and it's going into the inning, you know, it's going into practice, it's lingering. Now I've got I've got something to talk to you about, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to know what your extreme release is. I want to know when you get pissy. I want to know when you get upset. I want to see that. And then I want to see when you've released it. But if you hold on to it and then you're always upset and always crying or you're always mad, then then we've got we've got deeper issues that we've got to get into. And then we talk about with our teammates like, you know, if if Mac Leonard is struck out and she's still into the third inning upset like she didn't let go of it. And I truly am not getting Mac on my team present. She's lost in this at bat two innings ago. And so I think that body language really lets us into who they are, what they're going through. And then how can I help you pull you out of it? Um, and then how can I be like, man, yeah, that did suck. You know, but now I need you to to move on. So, so I think it goes really deep. I think body language yeah. can tell you a lot, but like it also can like help you get them to where they want to go. And so mm -hmm. I I try to push buttons a lot. I try to really frustrate players a lot because I know they're putting a lot into it, and I want them to be great. And you're not going to get great if you don't really push those passion levels. But then when we get there, and then you go to the anger, fear, crying, I've got to be good enough to bring you back to make sure that we don't boil over again and, and let you be able to compete at that level. Absolutely. I think that's a great perspective that not her, but that having that deep care and then being able to adjust after having that frustration and not continuing on. What are yeah. some ways that you feel like you're able to help people push past those frustrations that that passion that spills over and not let it affect their performance, not just for one inning, two innings or in general in life, you know, yeah. the next day, the next hour, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still working on it. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a work sure. in progress. Every player is different. I'm sure you have family members or people, you know, that you can get heated conversations that hold on to it. Right. They bring it up again. You're like, Oh my gosh, are we bringing this up again? Like, you know, so it's like a, I, I think it's um it's a normal human reaction and it's a human being a human. And hmm. um, the part when you get in sports is people don't allow the human to be a human. They judge you as a sports player. Like, Oh, Good sportsmanship would do this. Good sport would do that. Female sports would do this. You know, like yeah. male sports, like how many times do guys go in if they strike out and they beat up a wall or an ice bucket with their bat? Uh -huh. And everyone's like, oh, he lost his cool, but you know, that's okay. You know, and girls <laughs> do it. And they're like, oh, like she's a mess, you know? And so uh -huh. like the judgment just goes so crazy. But we do have a, I have a former player, Ellie Cooper, who's on staff for us. She's a player performance coach for us. And I think the mental game is truly huge. We talk about it all the time, but we actually enlist it. We have her in the dugout. So um, I will definitely work with players as they're working through stuff, but I'll also make sure like, hey, you know, you better touch base with Ellie this week and let's talk about the tools and the ability to have releases. Um, let's really, let's get into why striking out is so affecting you right now, right? Because there's probably a narrative stuck to it. 
And the narrative may be something in their mind they gave, or the narrative may be covering parents. It may be coming from a hometown. It may be coming from um, their teammates. Who knows, right? Like, so if we can dig deeper and release that and then allow them to get to more of their abilities, they can play softball at a higher level. So, um, so yeah, so I definitely think the importance of it and have Ellie on staff and that's all she does um, is hugely important for their growth. Absolutely. That's great. And I've heard you touch on calm breeds calm. So I think that that's yeah. a great uh, correlation to that as yeah. well. I wish we had more time, but I want to, uh, you know, wind down on your time. I have a little fire round for you. So we'll say a, a yeah. sentence or a word and you can finish however you feel. Uh, you can do anything if. Ooh, you love it. Yeah. Persistence is. Consistency. <laughs> Favorite vacation spot. Oh my gosh. Anything with an ocean. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Humility means. Uh, genuine. Favorite book. Uh, anything John Grisham. I'm a big John Grisham fan. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll done with the fire round. The final two questions I have for you. Is there a certain piece of best advice that you haven't already shared? And, and what is that? Um, I mean, I've always told people just to be comfortable in your own skin, just be who you are. Um, that's really easy to say later in life. So like I was saying earlier, like, um, I think I, cause of the cow patty situation, right. And my mom showed me to be different was okay. Like later in life, I realized that I've chosen those ways and, you know, I've just been, I've been genuinely to who I am and it's allowed me to be very, um, I don't know, grateful for my moments. I've never compromised, you know, my ethics and values. And I'm very grateful for that. So be comfortable with who you are and do what you do. Absolutely. Well, this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Oh, gosh. Um, so that's a funny, it's a complicated bit. It's like um, someone, our, Kane always said, like, be excellent every day. And I'm like, man, like, I'm not excellent. Like, yeah. I'm late for things. I'm very disorganized. I don't return all my texts. Like, I, <laughs> you know, like, I was like putting myself down of like, excellence is like, excellent in everything. But then I started realizing, like, to me, excellence is just really being genuine. Like, I'm genuinely into what I'm doing. So I would say excellence is being very genuine, too, or be where your feet are, like, being into it, right? If you're trying to superficially get, check all the boxes and not be into it, you're not really doing it justice, you know, for you personally or for what you're a part of. So, um, so over the years, I've allowed myself to be late and be okay with it because um, I'm really genuinely into the growth of our program and our players, and I'm going to give them, you know, everything that I have. Yeah, well, I would say you're you're a pretty good example of, of doing yeah. that, and <laughs> I just want to say thanks for coming on the show and for sharing a little bit of your story and some yeah. of the lessons you learned of building your program and the things you're doing. Obviously, you're very successful and you won championships, but it's not the whole reason why you do what you do and make an impact, and so thank you yeah. for, for doing that. If people wanted to follow the Florida State program, what's the best way of doing that? Are you on social media, anything like that? We are. We got Twitter, Instagram. We've got it all. So hit up FSU Softball and check us out. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, the the fun part is our players. Like, you know, so you can follow our players through there. And um, anyone that's interested in sports, it's fun to watch the kids grow. Um, so um, I would say to anyone that ever follows, like, People can get so mean on the backside of social media. And like okay. I was saying earlier, like no one could get mean to me on my decisions that I made in college because it was never out there. And so, um, but if we can all support and watch the players grow, super proud of kids that go from their freshman year to their senior year. So be a part of that journey. Absolutely. Come watch it in, in Oklahoma City. So Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Coach, thank you so much for taking some time. I appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Building Excellence Podcast. If you found value today, we would really appreciate it if you shared the show and left a rating and review. Also, be sure to follow us on all podcasts and social platforms, as well as YouTube, where you can watch full video episodes. To learn more about the podcast or any coaching or speaking, check out baileymiles.com. Thanks again, and now go work to build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy.